All right, so I've got, I got a question. How many of us here have ever toured any caverns before? Any? I got my first cavern few, uh, tour a few years ago in the Lewis and Clark Caverns in Montana. And so this tour guide took us uh, into this cave, a uh, group of us down and deep underground where we saw stalagmites and stalactites and all, all sorts of cool rock formations. And at a certain point in the tour, the tour guide said, hey, we're so many feet underground in a minute, let's all turn off our flashlights because what we're going to see is the blackest pitch black darkness you've ever seen. And so we turned off our flashlights and I saw the most incredible thing I had ever seen. Absolutely nothing. I remember looking around and, and waving my hands in front of my face, but I saw nothing. And then the tour guide turned on her flashlight and I saw what was actually the most incredible thing, that that little light lit up a huge portion of the cavern. And it was the coolest thing to see the radiant power of this little light in what would otherwise be a black and suffocating darkness. And I share this story only because it illustrates what I want to do in my sermon this morning. I want to take you under the earth and cut out the lights so that, number one, you will see the darkest pitch black darkness you've ever seen, but that, number two, that when the light comes on, your whole world will light up. And by God's grace, you will see the things that darkness conceals as clear as day. See, I could have titled this sermon, The Meaning of Life with the Resurrection, and that would have sounded a lot more positive and optimistic. But I've titled this sermon, The Absurdity of Life Without the Resurrection, because first, I want to bring you face to face with the dark and dreadful reality that if there is no resurrection, and Christ is not raised from the dead. Our existence and the lives we live are utterly meaningless, hopeless, and absurd. But then second, I wanna bring light into this darkness and show you that because there is a resurrection, we have the greatest hope, okay? Now, I've been very intrigued by a movement in theater drama that took place in the 1950s and early 60s, primarily in Europe, called the Theater of the Absurd. Now, absurdism is a philosophy that was influenced by existentialist philosophers such as Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and others. And it's based on the atheistic belief that because there is no God, the universe exists for no reason. And thus, everything and everyone in the universe exists for no reason. We're just here. There is no ultimate purpose. There is no real meaning. There is no heaven. We just are now, and that's it. And this philosophy is called absurdism because when you look to this godless universe for some grand explanation for your existence, but only find that you are just an accidental byproduct of nature that came about through millions of years of random evolutionary mutations and natural selection, you realize that all you are is just matter plus time plus chance. And even if we really feel like we matter to the universe, if the only meaning or purpose that we have is based on how we personally feel about things in our minds, 
but there is no ultimate, objective, transcendent, out there, meaning in reality, then the short time we have between life and death is ultimately meaningless. And it doesn't really matter, ultimately, if our lives are lived like Jesus or Adolf Hitler, because the universe doesn't care. There is no ultimate justice for rights or wrongs. Everything in life is just a means to the same end, death. So no matter how much good or evil you do in the world, or how much love or hate you spread in the world, or how much you create or destroy in the world, it all ultimately ends for everyone the exact same way. And to say, well, you, you must determine your own purpose and meaning in life is just another way of saying and admitting there is no ultimate purpose or meaning to life. To say, you must turn on your own light in here is just another way of saying and admitting there is no real light on out there, just darkness. And so some playwrights became very influenced by this absurdist philosophy and the theater of the absurd was born. And one of the plays that came out of this movement was Samuel Beckett's 1953 play called Waiting for Godot. And this entire two-hour play is just two guys named Vladimir and Estragon who stand under a dead tree and carry out pointless conversation and small talk as they wait for someone named Godot to show up. But at the end of the play, the curtain closes and Godot never shows. So what's the point of the play? You know what's crazy? This is a very famous play. In fact, in 1992, Sesame Street actually aired an episode in their monster piece theater segment called Waiting for Elmo, where Grover and Telly Monster stand under a dead tree and carry out pointless conversation and small talk without Elmo ever showing up. And I want to show you this clip right now, so look at the screen. Yes, Alistair Cookie, welcoming you to Monsterpiece Theater. Today, me proud to present a modern masterpiece. A play so modern and so brilliant, it makes absolutely no sense to anybody, including Alistair. Okay, maybe you can figure it out. The puzzling story of two monsters waiting for their friend. A play called Waiting for Elmo. I wonder where our little friend Elmo is. He said to wait by this tree and he would come out and play with us, but he's not here. He's not here. But think about this. When Elmo finally shows up and plays with us, we will be so happy. so much fun. But what if we wait here all day and he never shows up? Oh, that would make us angry. How dare he keeps us by this tree waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, let us give another look. Maybe he is coming. He's still not here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, maybe I should go and 
you wait for Elmo. But then I'd be all alone. And that would make me sad. Oh, so sad. Yes, that would be sad. Waiting for Elmo alone by a tree. Alone in the world. Waiting. 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 Okay, that does it. I've been standing out here waiting for this play to make some sense. I don't get it. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm out of here. Why couldn't they do Oklahoma? I understand Oklahoma. Oh! Oh, The tree is living, and Elmo said to wait by the tree. We will have to pull the tree. What tree? Wait, wait. wait. (laughs) Yeah, that deep, deep stuff. Oh, well, now for something that makes a lot more sense. So the tree and Cookie Monster don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And they wonder, what's the point? And that is exactly the point Samuel Beckett was trying to get across. This life, existence, what's the point? We're just killing time waiting, and for what? We don't even know. Nothing but death has ever come or showed up to put an end to our insufferable waiting. And since nothing ever comes to put an end to our waiting, then it seems that life is just a kind of waiting as prisoners of time for our inevitable and inescapable death. When Friedrich Nietzsche famously pronounced the death of God, saying God is dead and we have killed him in his book, The Gay Science, even Nietzsche recognized that a world without God would inevitably lead to philosophical nihilism, the destruction of all meaning and purpose and hope. This view was summed up well in Jean-Paul Sartre's book with the lovely title, Nausea, which is that feeling that arises from the anguish of understanding the ultimate meaninglessness of existence and the disgust of having to live in it and freely make decisions and choices in it that are completely without direction and ultimately amount to what? Albert Camus cuts right to the chase and opens his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, with this sentence. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is of the question of suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Camus is saying, because life is absurd, is it even worth living? By the way, this is what Shakespeare has Hamlet asking when he says, to be or not to be, That is the question. Now I wanna say something that may be shocking to some of you, if all this isn't shocking enough already, and that is this, that I think these three atheists are absolutely right. If there is no God. If there is no God, then I think that the logical conclusions that they came to about the meaninglessness of life and existence are absolutely right. But I think these three atheists are absolutely wrong 
because the resurrection proves that Jesus is alive and that the powers of death have given way to the powers of life and that the power of light has banished the powers of darkness and that we have the greatest hope. This morning we're gonna look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. We're going to talk about how the Apostle Paul links the idea of the believer's hope with the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll also talk about how the resurrection gives us meaning for life. But before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, help us all to see and understand the horror and dreadfulness of life apart from you, but also to see and understand, trust in, celebrate, magnify, and rejoice in our greatest hope, a hope that was purchased for us by a dying Savior and then proved to us by his resurrecting triumph over death. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So 1 Thessalonians is one of two letters we have that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, which was the Roman, uh, was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And in chapter four of this letter, Paul addresses some of the questions that the Thessalonians had regarding death and the second coming of Christ. Uh, see, some of the members of this church in Thessalonica had died, and so the Thessalonians were concerned about what would happen to them, thinking that they'd possibly miss out on Christ's second coming to earth because they were dead. And so Paul writes this letter to them, and here in chapter four, he says, guys, I want to address the fact that some among you have died. And why? Verse 13, second half of verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, this first verse, verse 13, raises at least five questions in my mind. Question number one, why does Paul use the word asleep and not dead? Why does Paul use the word asleep and not dead? Was Paul just trying to be more polite and less blunt with his words? And so he uses this kind of nice metaphor, asleep instead of dead. What was interesting is that Jesus actually used this metaphor twice in the Gospels when he raised both the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus back to life from the dead. In both these instances, after they had died and everyone was weeping and grieving over their deaths, Jesus said, guys, they're just asleep. And then he raised them back to life. And it doesn't quite make sense why Jesus would say this until we read John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus was saying that there is a life after death that can be had through faith in him. And so Paul was saying, guys, those who have died among you are not gone. They have closed their eyes in death but have already opened them again in glory. 
and their physical bodies are only sleeping because when Christ returns, those bodies will be awakened to live again. Number two, is Paul saying that Christians shouldn't grieve over death? Is Paul saying that Christians shouldn't grieve over death? No, that's not what he's saying. Of course we grieve the loss of loved ones. Paul is just saying, guys, though we grieve, we do not grieve in the way that others do who have no hope. So Paul is telling us how we grieve. And he reminds us that Christians can grieve and hope, knowing that death will not have the final word over a Christian's life. Jesus will. Number three, why is death a part of life? Why is death a part of life? Ultimately, the reason we don't live forever in this life is because we are under the curse of mortality that God has pronounced upon this world because of sin. Death is a result and consequence of sin. This is why ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, things have naturally tended toward disorder and decay and death. This is why everything ages and eventually dies or eventually crumbles or eventually falls apart. And things like sickness and disease and injury, which are all a natural part of this broken and fallen world, only speed up this process. But this is not the way things were meant to be. We were not meant to sin against God. We were meant to love, worship, glorify, and enjoy him forever, and we can, but not in this life, because this life, infected with sin, is quickly passing away. Which leads us to question number four. Who are these others who grieve because they have no hope? Who are these others who grieve because they have no hope? Well, let's read the next verse, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So since Paul says that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it seems that these others must be those who don't believe that Jesus died and rose again. And it's these others, Paul says, who are without hope. And lastly, question number five, it's implied that there is some kind of hope. What is it? It's implied that there is some kind of hope. What is it? Well, Paul ends verse 13 talking about hope, and then he starts the next sentence with the word for, which is a word that links the idea of hope with whatever he's about to say, and then he says two things. Number one, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and number two, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying that our hope is both believing that Jesus died and rose again and that all the Christians who have fallen asleep, whose souls are with Jesus now, will be with him also at his second coming when they, like Jesus, are resurrected themselves. In other words, Jesus' resurrection on the third day is a picture of our resurrection on the last day. Jesus' resurrection on the third day is a picture of our resurrection on the last day. And this gives us hope. 
gives us hope in life and in death. So Paul is writing to Christians and he states these propositions positively for Christians. He's saying, guys, we have great hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And there is lots of hope in the resurrection of Jesus. See, because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. We know that Jesus' payment for our sin on the cross was accepted by God the Father. We know that the just and holy and righteous wrath of God against us for sin has been satisfied. We know that Jesus' life is stronger than the power of death. We know that because Jesus lives, we too will live even after death. We know that all of our loved ones who have passed away but believed in Jesus are with him now. We know that death will not have the final word over our lives. Jesus will. And we know that we will be raised like Jesus when he comes again. The resurrection proves that the powers of Satan and sin and death were defeated on the cross and that Jesus is the conquering king and triumphant savior and the way and the truth and the life for all whose lives would otherwise end only in death. But this is only a reality for those who have trusted in Jesus for life and salvation. And so while Paul states these propositions positively for Christians, he states these propositions negatively for unbelievers, saying that there are others, there are those who have no hope. Now, I want to be very clear about something here. I am not trying to back anyone in particular in this room into a corner this morning to specifically address unbelief in the resurrection, okay? I actually want to back everyone in this room today into a corner this morning, along with myself, to bring us all face to face with a dark and dreadful reality, supposing that, hypothetically, the resurrection never happened. So here's the question. What would it mean if Jesus was never raised from the dead and is not risen today? What would it mean if Jesus was never raised from the dead and is not risen today? You know, this is precisely the question that the Apostle Paul raises in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in, in that chapter, he says that if Jesus was never raised from the dead, preaching Christ is meaningless. Faith in Christ is meaningless. The witnesses, proclaimers of the resurrection are liars. There is no redemption from sin. All believers who have died have forever perished. And get this, he says, Christians of all people are the most to be pitied. I think it's incredible how honest Paul is about this. And Paul never once says, well, even if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be and never rose from the dead, at least we can keep his teachings. Paul never says that. See, this is what makes Christianity different from every other major world religion. Take Buddha out of the picture and you can still have and practice Buddhism. Take Muhammad out of the picture and you can still have and practice Islam. Take Joseph Smith out of the picture and you can still have and practice Mormonism, right? All these men are dead. They're not here anymore, but there are still faithful practicing Buddhists, Muslims, and Mormons today. 
But if you take Christ out of Christianity, you lose Christianity. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Christ, who he is, what he did, what he's promised to do. Jesus is not an idea or a doctrine or a philosophy to be understood, but a person to know and to love and to follow. One author said this, the message that flashed across, flashed across the ancient world set hearts on fire, changed lives, and turned the world upside down was not love your neighbor. Every morally sane person already knew that. It was not news. The news was that a man who claimed to be the son of God and savior of the world had risen from the dead. So Paul is very clear about what it would mean if Jesus was never raised from the dead and is not risen today. There would be no Christianity it would not work. But what else would be true if we were to push this hypothesis just a little further? Think about this with me. If Jesus was never raised, then Jesus, if he was only a man, or if he was really God, the second member of the Trinity, either way, he was a liar because he said he would be raised and he wasn't. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then the disciples and every other eyewitness of the resurrection were liars too. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then all the parts of the Bible that said that he was going to be raised, and all the parts of the Bible that say that he was raised, in all the parts of the Bible that show how Jesus is the focal point of all God's redemptive work from Genesis chapter three to Revelation chapter 22. If Jesus wasn't raised, then the whole Bible which centers around Jesus falls apart and cannot be trusted. And if the Bible can't be trusted, can we have any way of knowing what God is really like? Can we have any way of knowing if it's possible to have a relationship with him? Can we have any way of knowing if there is life beyond the grave? Can we have any concrete truth regarding a purpose or meaning for life and existence? Can we justify our existence at all? Or are we forced to just conclude that we're just here now? Waiting, and that's it. If the resurrection never happened, Jesus' words fall apart, the Bible falls apart, reality as we know it falls apart, our faith means nothing, this sermon I'm preaching means nothing, you're sitting here listening to this sermon means nothing, everything means nothing. We're all just born to die, all meaning is only a personal feeling. All purpose is only a personal feeling. All light that we'd hope would illuminate this dark world only exists in our minds. And we don't matter to this impersonal universe, even if we really feel like we should. So if the resurrection never happened, how would we deal with our existence? 
And how are people today who don't believe that the resurrection happened and don't believe that Jesus is God and don't even believe that there is a God, how are they dealing with their existence? And are they dealing with their existence honestly? I wanna look at how three of the most famous, influential, and admittedly brilliant existentialist philosophers who were atheists dealt with the implications of a godless world. Friedrich Nietzsche rejected God and believed that the main driving force in humans is their will to power, which is basically our natural and inherent desire to dominate. It's kind of like that game you may have played as a kid, King of the Hill, right? Where one person climbs to the top of the hill and everyone else's challenge is to climb up and push him off so that they can be on top of the hill and whoever's left standing at the end of the game is declared to be the king of the hill. And Nietzsche would say that this childish game is just an expression of the same kinds of domineering games that adults play through corporate pyramids and economic competition and wars. And so this, because this survival of the fittest, king of the hill instinct is natural and inherent in mankind, it's good. It needs to be exercised, not restrained. So Nietzsche thought that by making an assault on the hill of cultural norms and especially traditional moral values and ethics, which usually restrain these domineering behaviors, and then by throwing these things off and taking the hill, that mankind could basically become God and create new values and evolve into a more superior species, which he called in German the Ubermensch, the Superman. But why would Nietzsche be on this crusade to bring about this superior species, the Ubermensch, when earlier he admits that because there is no God, there is no meaning to life? Seems to be contradictory. And Nietzsche basically said, yeah, that's right, it's contradictory. It doesn't make sense, but you might as well act with courage and according to your natural instinct, even though it ultimately won't matter and is meaningless anyways, because the only thing you have in this life is your will to power. Jean-Paul Sartre rejected God and talked a lot about the freedom we have to do the things we are naturally able to do. In other words, we are born into this world at a certain time period, in a certain location, into a certain family, with certain physical characteristics and abilities, and based off of those things, which he called factical realities, those matter-of-fact facts of our existence, each and every one of us has a unique world of possibilities to us to do all sorts of things. But Sartre believed that we're always running away from our freedom through believing, through what he called bad faith, that we are not free to choose. So, for example, we may be naturally able and want to be sexually promiscuous. But religion would say no, and in some cases, even the culture and society would say no. And because of those things, we might choose to not be sexually promiscuous. But Sartre would say, why not? If you are naturally able to do it and you want to do it, do it. So why don't we? 
So I've trusted that it's because our freedom is much deeper and much wider than we're comfortable with, and that's because it is completely without direction or guidance. He said that really living freely and being a direction unto ourselves is terrifying. And it's terrifying because ultimately we are so free that we could always choose a different path of direction and it would be just as valid as any other path we've ever chosen. But then that means that the path we're currently on is arbitrary. It's just our preference. And that means that it's without real, objective, transcendent, out there, meaningful direction. And it's this ultimate directionlessness about our existence that causes us to ask, where are we even going? And produces within us this feeling of nausea, and which caused Sartre to conclude that freedom is condemnation. Man, he said, is condemned to freedom. And so yes, you are free, and you should live freely without restraint, but your existence is a dreadful reality because you are condemned to a meaningless freedom that is without real direction or guidance. Albert Camus rejected God and clearly understood how absurd life without God really is and asked, is this life even worth living? Is suicide a viable option? He eventually concluded that it's necessary to, on one hand, confront life's absurdity with honesty, but on the other hand, to remain defiantly unaccepting of it. He called the kind of person who can do this the absurd man. The absurd man rebels against the universe by rejecting suicide because he knows that suicide would just go along with and affirm the absurdity of life. So continuing to live and enjoying life as best as you can would actually be a conscious act of rebellion and defiance against the universe, against the absurdity of life. It's kind of like this. If I was sentenced to spend the rest of my life in prison, the most defiant thing I could possibly do, think about this, would be to enjoy the experience. And that's because my enjoyment of prison would actually negate the reason for which I was put there in the first place, which was as a form of punishment and non-enjoyment. And so Camus would say I'd have to consciously, on one hand, be honest about my condemnation and punishment of prison, but on the other hand, remain defiantly unaccepting of it. And I do that through actually enjoying the experience. In other words, bringing this back to the big question of our existence, we must consciously and defiantly refuse to accept what we know is really true. And so Nietzsche called for exercising one's own will to power through acting according to our natural instinct, though he admits that ultimately it doesn't matter because life is meaningless anyways. Sartre called for living freely without restraint, though he admits that life's freedom is directionless and dreadful. And Camus called for a conscious and defiant rejection of reality, though he admits in honesty that he still knows the reality he is rejecting 
and that is the real and actual absurdity of life. And so to add these three philosophers' ideas together, we get this one sentence. We should exercise our natural desires freely and without restraint, while at the same time we defiantly reject the truth we know and understand that our existence is ultimately meaningless. I'll say that one more time. We should exercise our natural desires freely and without restraint, while at the same time we defiantly reject the truth we know and understand that our existence is ultimately meaningless. You know what's really interesting? You will discover nearly the exact same conclusion early on in the Bible. From Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. And then again from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then again from Jesus in one of his parables in Luke, where they all together say, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now in the context of these passages, this phrase, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is not a good thing, but is actually the response to one's own existence from a person who has no hope in God. For the person who has no hope in God, all they have left is to just eat and drink and be merry, which is just doing what they want to do, exercising their natural desires freely and without restraint, while defiantly, with enjoyment, rejecting the truth they know and understand that life is short, tomorrow we die. Ultimately then, nothing really matters. In other words, it took these three brilliant existentialist philosophers together, decades of life experience, countless hours of thought and reflection, and thousands of pages through several books to come to the exact same conclusion that this book came to thousands of years earlier, which they rejected. What I do appreciate about these three existentialist philosophers, however, is that they were intellectually honest. I wonder how many atheists today are this honest. These three men believed that there was no God, and they faithfully carried that idea to its logical conclusion. They were honest about the meaninglessness, directionlessness, dreadfulness, and absurdity of life without God. And if there was no resurrection, this is the reality of what we have to figure out and deal with. If there was no resurrection, this is the exact same reality that you and I have to figure out and deal with. Now the truth is, you and I feel like we matter. You and I feel like we matter. And I want to tell you this this morning, that the reason you and I feel like we matter is because we do matter significantly. 
and we matter not because of the worth that we ourselves or our loved ones or society or anyone else in the world ascribes to us. We matter because we were created by the God of the universe who loves us and who put each and every one of us on this planet for a purpose and who desires to have a real relationship with us and who came into this world through Jesus to make that possible by dying and rising for sin and who will come into our world today when we turn away from the darkness of our sin and trust in Jesus to be our light and to forgive and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness and to clothe us with the royal robe of his righteousness and to be our God and our king, the ruler of our life the commander of our destiny. And the great hope for all of us who have trusted in Jesus is not only knowing that we are no longer guilty of all the wrong and evil in our lives that had condemned us to death, our lifetime of it, but also knowing that when death comes, it will not have the final word over our lives. Jesus will. Now, this may all sound like pretty good news, but listen carefully. It is only good news if it is actually true. If any of this isn't really real, then it means nothing. The truth of Christianity stands or falls entirely on the facts of history. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, we talked about some of these facts. We talked about the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to say this, if you were not able to be there this morning and you're interested in that, if you want to know more about that topic, and especially if you're someone who is doubting that the resurrection really happened, I have left, I made a number of copies of exactly what I taught this morning, and those are all out on the information center table. So if you would like to see what was taught this morning in Sunday school, you can go ahead and grab one of those, or come talk to me after the service, and we can talk, okay? But let me just say this for now, while I'm not going to get into all this evidence stuff. I think that all of the historical evidence clearly tells us why no one has ever been able to find the dead body of the most famous person of all human history. And that's because there is no dead body to be found. Jesus is alive. And here in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says that our hope for life our every hope for life is inextricably tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection, if true, proves that our existence is meaningful, that our sin is forgiven, and that our destiny is to be with Jesus forever. And so, left with the alternatives, I want to ask you this. Where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? If your hope today is in Jesus, then I encourage you to continue to find your hope in Jesus and not in the things of this world because all these things are here today but gone tomorrow and cannot give us hope. Oh, let us continually turn away from those things and trust in Jesus. And if your hope today is not yet in Jesus, then I'd encourage you to find your hope in Jesus and not in the things of this world. Every hope apart from Jesus is a false hope. Everything else will fail you. Everything else will eventually leave you or be taken from you. 
Everything else will leave you waiting for something more that will never come. And nothing else in this world can give you the love and the life and the joy that you were created to have in God. Jesus says in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look to Jesus today. But if you've decided today that your hope will not be in Jesus, and you want nothing to do with Jesus, then I'd encourage you to just eat and drink and be merry, because tomorrow you die. Just live for today, just live for pleasure, just do what you wanna do, because ultimately it will all be gone, and it won't matter anymore. But know this, if you are wrong, then this life will be the closest you will have ever gotten to heaven. And your eternity will be even more absurd and dreadful than this life apart from God ever was. Please look to Jesus today. Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Albert Camus had no hope in God and spent their lives learning what that meant for their existence. And all of their existential thoughts and endeavors only led them to the same conclusion that the Bible gave thousands of years before them. And the final word over their lives was just death. Who will have the final word over your life? At the cross, we see the death of our death, our sin, in the death of Christ. And in the resurrection, we see the power of divine life, the life that God gives to the dead hearts of those who trust in him right now in this life. And that divine and eternal life will continue on from this life into eternity such that when we die, we will only be sleeping and will be with the Lord immediately in glory. In Jesus, and in Jesus alone, this great hope is ours today and on the last day and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to understand fully the incredible significance and weightiness of the resurrection. Lord, apart from the hope we have in you and in the death and resurrection of your son, oh Lord, we are lost cosmic orphans in a universe without purpose or meaning. Lord, I thank you that you rule over all and that you have shown us that our lives matter and so much so that you would love us and pursue us and give us the way and the truth and the life through Jesus despite our faithlessness, sinfulness, and rebellion. Lord God, help us to examine our hearts this morning and to identify where our hope for life really lies. And Lord, if our hope is found in anything else, in anything but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Lord God, forgive us. Grant us repentance and reorient our hearts toward you. Amen.